Good morning. Welcome to Chatham Community Church. I'm so glad you're joining us this morning. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this does happen to be your first time, I'd love to say hi to you. So at the end of the service, I'm going to be in the back. Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name, uh, how you came about us, how you ended up in Chatham County, and a little bit of uh, what your experience was like this morning. Uh, It's January 1945, and the Allied First Forces are looking to take back the Belgian town of Foy from Nazi occupation. They launch an initial attack, and the initial attack gets bogged down. It's not proving successful, and the person leading the assault has to be relieved of his command. Lieutenant Ronald Spears is put in charge of the assault now, and he's looking to uh, come up with a different strategy to engage and take back this town, to liberate it from Nazi occupation, right? Uh, I want you to picture not sort of an open battlefield, but uh, sort of urban kind of warfare in a town, right? There are buildings, there are structures, there are tanks, there are forces gathered in different places trying to either fight off or overtake. He was leading his company into the battle, and he realized that there was a platoon that was following a flanking order on the other side of the enemy lines. They had been given that flanking order before command had been changed, and Spears needed to let this platoon know that there were different orders now, that there was a different chain of command, that someone else was in charge. But he couldn't get word to them because they didn't have a radio. But he needed to get word to them because this was already a chaotic situation and it could prove even more chaotic if if they didn't realize that there was a new plan for how they were going to go about this. So in a split-second decision, Spears bursts out from cover, runs straight through the enemy line, gets to the other side where the platoon is, lets them know what's what, gives them the new battle strategy, and then turns right back around, runs through the enemy line again and gets back to his people, the allies take Foy that day. Part of it was due to a man who was able to navigate not just through the chaos of battle, but navigate through the potential chaos of his own people not knowing what the new orders were. Though it's not a World War II battlefield, all of us are going to have to navigate some form of chaos in this life. Between the culture wars, between uh, family feuds, between uncertainties at work, between the pressures at school and some of the culture of fear that's rising up in our schools as well, and the barrage of nonstop, not just informations, but opinions that come at us. It can feel like we are consistently, we are consistently being bombarded. It feels like chaos is not just sort of a How do we navigate through that? How do we make our way through lives that are filled with chaos? Or let's navigate through chaos in both practical and thoughtful ways. And much of that truth is contained in the parts of the Bible that are known as wisdom literature. Turns out, what we need to get through the chaos of today is timeless wisdom. Is wisdom that's been around since the beginning of time, and it's helped people navigate through chaos in every season of history and every situation in our world. So today we are going to start a series that we've titled The Way of Wisdom, Navigating Through the Chaos. And we're going to start with painting a picture of the path of wisdom, the kind of path that gets us through chaos, and not just through chaos, but it enables us to thrive even when there's chaos all around us. 
So if you have a Bible, we're going to start today in Psalms. We're going to start in the first Psalm. This is the book of poetry and prayer of song in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It is the longest book. So odds are if you randomly open the Bible, the odds are good you're going to land in the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 1. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We're going to put it on the screen in just a second. But if you are able to and want to, you can join me in Psalm 1. And here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore... The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Though I clustered it in paragraphs, I let you know before that the Psalms are poetry, right? And if you're looking at it in your Bible, that's a little bit more evident. And though Hebrew poetry has its own distinctions, its own particularities, it's also, uh, we're also able to employ sort of the, the things we've learned, or we learn, or someone told us, about how to analyze poetry. For those of you who can remember that far back into that part of English class, or those of you who are paying attention to your English class in the current day and age, we can employ some of those techniques. And so one thing to note about this psalm is that this psalm develops its theme by contrast. Right? It, is, it is showing you one thing and another, and it is contrasting them. It's painting pictures of two things and showing you how they are distinct from one another. And that technique can be employed just to compare two equally good things and highlight how they are different. But the psalmist has a different agenda in mind with this contract, with, 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 with this contrast, with how he develops this theme. The alternatives that he presents, and it's likely a he because at that time, those are the likely writers. The alternatives he's comparing are clearly not equal in value, or at the very least, the psalmist doesn't perceive them to be equal in value. He wants us to consider that one of those alternatives is exceptionally better than the other. It's exceptionally more attractive than the other. It's exceptionally more appealing than the other. And his reason, not just for comparing this to but for heightening how much better one is than the other is what's at stake. There's something serious at stake in the theme that the psalmist is developing, and it's right at the beginning. The psalmist wants to show us what the path to the blessed life is. And so he tells us that there is a split. There is a split. And one path leads to the blessed life, and one path leads to a different kind of life, and that is not a path to take. It is not good. You should not go there. Nothing good can come of this. And down one path is the blessed life. And the idea of being blessed can conjure up lots of different pictures for us. In fact, a few years ago, the concept of being blessed entered into sort of the social media lexicon with hashtag blessed. And usually it got associated with taking stock of what you had or something that had been given or something that had been done for you, and you considered yourself favored. You considered yourself fortunate. You considered yourself hashtag blessed. So Starbucks in the morning and uh, my journal before me, hashtag blessed. 
Or here's the new car my parents got me for graduation, hashtag blessed. And I'm not saying those things are not good or not necessarily helpful or not necessarily worth highlighting and celebrating. I'm saying that perhaps there's more to being blessed than just that. In fact, I'd argue that even using the word blessed in this psalm is a poor translation. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, But one of them is that the Hebrew word that we commonly translate as blessed or that we commonly associate with blessing is not the Hebrew word in this passage. The Hebrew word that gets translated as blessed or that gets associated with blessing is barak. So for those of you who've heard or been in some sort of Jewish ceremonies, you may have heard baruch adonai, bless the Lord, right? Uh, That's not the word here. In fact, uh, if my Hebrew is not too rusty, the psalm starts with a little bit of uh, common alliteration or assonance. It starts uh, ashrei haish asher, right? So common uh, sounds. And you didn't hear a buh anywhere there. There's a different word. A more appropriate translation might be happy. Happy. And so you might start the psalm saying, happy is he who. Right? And that will lead you sort of the common assonance or common alliteration there. Happy. And so we move from thinking about this one path to the blessed life to this one path that is actually to the happy life. And that presents its own challenges. That presents its own challenges. Because for, in order for us to consider the happy life, we have to reframe what we think of as happiness. Because if we limit happiness to thinking it as just something associated with glee or with a warm feeling, that feels like a very limited kind of life. It feels like very limited. So let's start by reframing and expanding happiness from just that concept. Here's how uh, Carlin Fiora defines it, and you should find it in, our, in an article in Psychology Today. What is happiness? The most useful definition is more like satisfied or content, and actually I'd say satisfied and content, than happy in its strict bursting with glee sense. Happiness has deliberation to it. It encompasses living a meaningful life, utilizing your gifts, utilizing your time, living with thought and purpose. In her article, she continues to expand on it. She even adds a community aspect to it. Happiness is broad, right? This gives us a more robust, a fuller picture, a, a sort of a, a, a more encompassing picture of what, se- of what happiness can be. It gives us something more to grab hold of, to conceptualize, to reflect on, to consider. This is a more well-rounded picture of life. This looks like something that we can live something that we can participate in, something that we can sink our teeth into. Purpose, meaning, usefulness, depth, thoughtfulness, community, all of this wrapped in this idea of satisfied contentment. That feels attractive. That feels appealing. That feels like something worth aspiring to, and that's what's at stake as the psalmist develops his theme. One path leads to this, and the other path leads to something entirely different. It leads to a life absent that, and an unhappy life. When we think about it from the perspective of this definition, a life that is unsatisfied, a life that is discontent, is not just a tragedy for the person experiencing it. It has repercussions for those around them. It has repercussions for those around us as well. 
The musical Hamilton hits on this. The musical Hamilton and the book that it's based on hit on this. One of the things that's commonly said about Hamilton is you will never be satisfied. It consistently gets repeated throughout the musical. You will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. He's got all these things going for him. Now, he starts from a hard life. He starts from a hard beginning. But, in, but by his 20s, he's accomplished so much. He's got an education. He's been George Washington's right-hand man. He's got a brilliant mind. He's fought for a worthy cause. He has a family, a wonderful family. He's establishing something that we are still benefiting from to this day, something that has lasted but he doesn't seem to be living a happy life. He's not content. He's not satisfied. He doesn't stop. It's one of the things that gets said about Hamilton is that he's non-stop. In fact, one of the things he says about himself, there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. There's always something more. And so he continues and he continues and he continues. And I'm not saying that ambition or aspirations are wrong, but there's something about the inability to contemplate what's already there and always pursuing what's next that can lead us past contentment, past satisfaction into actual destructive patterns. And he continues on and he makes poor choices and he hurts the people around him. He hurts his family. He loses his position and his influence. He gets frozen out. He crashes and burns in spectacular fashion. All because it seems like he chooses the path to the dissatisfied life, to the uncontent life. He is not living a happy life. So the choice that the psalmist sets before us has high stakes. Because though we're not the first secretary of the treasury, we all have people who look to us. We all have people who are affected by the choices we make. We all have people who are affected and who are impacted by how we conduct ourselves and even how we participate in this life. So let me ask you to take a moment right there and on a scale of 1 to 10, consider with 10 being the most, how satisfied do you feel with life right now? How content do you feel? How happy in that sense are you? How much of a sense of purpose do you feel? How much depth and thought and consideration have you given to that? And how might that be affecting the people around you? The people who count on you the people who you interact with, the people who look to you for help, for guidance, for influence, the people who look to help you. How is that impacting them? Let me take it one step further. How are you defining a happy life? Sometimes our level of discontent or dissatisfaction stems from the fact that we are aspiring to the wrong kind of happy life. It seemed to be true of Hamilton. His definition wasn't clear, but it was always just a little bit more, just a little bit further. How are you defining the happy life? And here's the thing. What if you've got it wrong? What if you're shooting for the unattainable? Or worse still, what if you're shooting for the thing that if you attain it, it actually won't fill? It actually won't satisfy? 
you actually won't be content. Folks, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Here's how the psalmist illustrates what the unsatisfied life looks like. Here's what the path is. Maybe you identify with some of these. People on the path to the unsatisfied life follow the advice of those that seek no good for them. Walk in the way of sinners, right? Those who don't have a vested interest in their well-being. Think of the people who influence your life, the voices, whether they are near or far, that shape your thought, that shape your action. How many of them have a vested interest in your well-being? And how many of them have a vested interest in your continued paying attention to them? Those two don't always align, folks. Those two don't always align. People on this path hang out with those who are in it for themselves. And here's the danger in that. That kind of stuff rubs off. If you hang out with people who are in it for themselves, you will end up being in it for yourself as well. And there is more to life than that. They talk themselves up by tearing others down, by talking others down. They play the comparison game. Comparison game is a dangerous one. Here's why. Because if you have to make the path of what you consider the good life narrower and narrower so that it only fits you and those like you, then you will always live in fear of someone else making it so narrow that you no longer fit in it either. That's not a satisfied life. There's no contentment there. They leave no good legacy, people on this path. What they set their lives to doesn't stand the test of time. And I know that there are people who think there's nothing more than to just be in this life however long we are on this speck of earth, and that's that. But I think for many of us, we want to do something that lasts. We want to leave a legacy. We don't necessarily want to be remembered, but we want to leave this life feeling like the things that we did mattered. Like they made an impact. The people on this path fade. And ultimately, and here's the indictment of the psalm, happiness is not theirs. This is not a content life. This is not a satisfied life. Do you recognize any of these in your life? Maybe time to change the path if you do. The image that the psalmist uses for these people is the image of chaff. This is what he uses to summarize this kind of life. And it would have been resonant to these people because here's what they would have been familiar with. At the time to harvest the grain, you would gather it all up and you would go to an elevated place, a place that, were, 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 that wouldn't be obstructed from the breeze. And what you would do is you would take all the wheat and the chaff together because it was hard to sift through it. And you would put it on what was called the threshing floor. And you would gather up much like they're doing, and you would toss up a chunk in the air as the wind was coming. And what would happen is the wind would take away the chaff because it was insubstantial. And the wheat would fall, and it would remain. The image he's communicating is this idea that the chaff was worthless. This is not a path that gets through chaos This is actually a path that often yields to chaos. This is a path that actually collaborates with chaos. And most of us, 
Dare I say, all of us don't want this kind of life. We want the kind of life that remains. We want the kind of life that has substance. We want the kind of life that doesn't collaborate with chaos and endures in the midst of chaos. So how do we avoid becoming like chaff? Well, it's right at the beginning of the psalm. Happy is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. It's right there. Now, the idea of law and the idea of meditating have particular fixed meanings for us in the present time. So let me unpack them a little bit. Because if we, if we take it from our fixed present-day meanings of these words, this doesn't seem attractive. It doesn't seem appealing. It, doesn't, it seems toilsome. And in fact, for many of us, it may seem non-accessible. So this is some of what happens when you translate from a language that has a limited canon of words into a language that has a large canon of words like English. Hebrew has a limited canon, which means that, ancient Hebrew, which means that their words were sort of multi-use or conveyed multiple things. So yes, for many of us, when we think of law, especially if we're church, we think of sort of the Old Testament code of ethics, code of rules, code of things to do. Even if we're not familiar uh, with the Bible or the Old Testament, when we think of law, we think of, okay, a list of regulations of do's and don'ts. But for the people of the Old Testament, it was that and it was more. A law, the law communicated a sense of direction, an orientation, a path. It communicated the way. For them, thinking about the law, was, was this, the law was this thing that set you on its course, on your course. It was the thing that oriented you. It was like your compass. That was the law. So when he talks about the law of the Lord, he's talking about the way of the Lord. Yes, he's talking about the, the, the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Levitical codes, but he's more than that. He's talking about the way of the Lord, the path of the Lord, the direction that the Lord has laid out. And when he talks about meditate, right, he's not talking about a closed eye, sitting still, legs crossed, humming optional kind of thinking. And I'm not knocking that. There are people that meditate that way. But it's an ongoing consideration, a close sort of a concept to the Old Testament meditation, the Old Testament concept of meditation is kind of ruminating, chewing on, masticating something, right? You sort of go over it over and over and over again. It's an ongoing consideration, a saturation of your day and your life with something. So when he says that happy are those who meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, he's saying that these are the people who saturate themselves with the path of God, with the direction of God, with the life that God has laid out for them. In fact, they don't just saturate themselves with that, they delight in that. Our days are already saturated with lots of things. I, I bet you if I polled a number of us here, we'd have a high percentage of people who would say, I don't have a free moment of thought in my day. There is no moment where my mind is not occupied with some thought. Our lives are already saturated with things, with thoughts of one thing, with thoughts of many things. And many of them are not there by choice. They're there by obligation or they're there by bombardment. And many of them are chaos or fruits of chaos or means 
to chaos. Many are associated with stress. So if your day is already going to be saturated with something, why not saturated with something that isn't that? Why not take delight in something different? The psalmist is saying that the happy life, the content life, the blessed life is, is one that's not just saturated with thoughts of life with God, but one that actively seeks that out, one that actively chooses into it, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of pleasure. That's what he talks about when he says delight, one that delights in these things, that takes pleasure in these things. Now think about all the things that saturate your day, that saturate your thought. You may not be sure that you like the stuff of God, but maybe you can imagine how life would be different if your day were saturated with something else other than the things that bring you stress and anxiousness and pain and worry. If you do find the stuff of God attractive, maybe you're here on a Sunday morning and you enjoy it and you feel peace and you feel uplift and you feel guidance, imagine that being not the exception to your week but being the norm. That's what a life saturated looks like. Now, taking delight in the ways of God, some of it may come naturally, some of it may require effort. We already find delight in many things or in some things. There are ways to engage with God in the midst of the things that we already delight in, and there are things that help us connect with God that we can work ourselves into delighting with or delighting through. A few years ago, I was interviewing uh, for a podcast, a member of our church who I feel lives the kind of life that is saturated in delight with God. And I asked her what that looks like. And she says, well, one of the first uh, times during the day when I connect with God, when I talk with God, when I hear with God, is as I'm letting out the chickens from their coop in the morning and the chickens are all around me. Now, that's odd to me because I think chickens are delicious once they've been killed and cooked, but otherwise they are disgusting animals. <laughs> Filthy creatures for which I'm grateful to God. <laughs> but there's something about this person being in, among the stink and the poop and the noise and the possibly getting pecked at. She connects with God in that setting. Part of it is she delights in caring for these chickens. She delights in what comes of it. She takes delight in that and she's found a way to connect with God in the midst of that. Many of us conceptualize taking delight in God or meditating on God through sort of like the traditional religious activity that we've been used to, right? We've got to sit down or kneel down and pray a particular way or open our Bibles and understand what's going on there and we fail to realize that God is accessible at every moment of our day. God has given us things that we can delight in already that we can meet him in. And it's just a matter of unlocking what that looks like. What are the things that you already delight in? How can you delight in the Lord as you delight in those things? How might you delight in God's way in those things? I have grown up with a love for reading my whole life. My whole life. It started as my mom uh, read me stories growing up. I take deep delight in reading. And as I've grown into adulthood, I've, in, I've, I've connected that with how I delight in the way of the Lord. So I delight as I'm reading fiction for the creativity that God has blessed people with. And I delight as I'm reading deep theological books because it engages my mind. And I feel like 
I know God better through that. But some of the things I, I, I use to connect with God are things I don't take great pleasure in or haven't always taken great pleasure in. I've had seasons where I don't take great pleasure in corporate worship. I, don't, I didn't take great pleasure in singing. I would come and I would be silent. And I had this moment where God said, all right, all right, for the sake of the community, it's time for you to figure out how to engage with this. And I started to exercise the singing. I started to consider what it meant for us as a community to meditate, to contemplate in the Lord. And now I take delight in it. I had to work myself into it. Another great gift of delight that I used to not take pleasure into, in fact, I thought it was unnecessary, is celebration. And if you're around me socially in any kind of way, I talk about celebrating a lot. I talk about celebrating a lot because I think our culture stinks at good celebration. Stinks. Which is a way in which we miss out on something good that God has given us. The opportunity to highlight the good things that happen and just enjoy them. And just enjoy them. I had to work myself into it. Uh, in fact, I worked myself into it to a point where a few years back, I was leading a team of people. I was the team leader. And this was as I was learning how to delight in the Lord and meet him in celebration. And people started saying, we want to be part of your team because that's the fun team. I was like, when did I become the fun guy? I was like the serious, intense, determined guy. I'm still all those things. But... There's something about exercising, learning to delight in God as I celebrated, giving myself permission to celebrate, that I met God in that, and it had an impact on the people around me. Folks, there are lots of means accessible to us. Some of the things we already commonly take delight in, some of the things that would be considered traditionally religious thing. Yes, there are ways to delight in reading Scripture. You may not have discovered yours. Yes, there are ways to delight in singing corporate worship, even if you don't like the modern songs. Yes, there are ways to delight in prayer, even if you've not figured out how to talk to God or how to sit still and listen. You may need to practice it to get it, but they're there for us if we'll give it a chance and our lives will become saturated. And what do saturated lives look like? Here's how the psalmist illustrates the satisfied life. Here is the different path. It's a life that chases after God with total abandon. It engages with whatever is accessible to them in their life and looks to connect with God in the midst of that. As the tree that is planted by streams of water, the water considered a source of life, it is a life that is connected to the source of life. It is consistently engaging with God. A different path is a life that lives in healthy cycles and patterns, including rest, replenishment, restoration, right? This is the tree that gives its fruit in its season. The imagery of the tree conjures up a space that is there for others, and it is a safe space. In the desert, trees were signs that there was an oasis, that there may be an oasis, a source of water. It was a place for birds and animals to rest. It was a place for people, for travelers to get under the shade, to be protected. It was a place of sanctuary. The tree that the psalmist describes thrives, come what may. Its leaf does not wither. It leaves a good legacy. Whatever it does endures. It says that the Lord watches over the path of the righteous, the people on this path. 
God is well acquainted with these people and these people are well acquainted with God and ultimately these people live the happy life, the blessed life, the satisfied life, the content life. That feels way more appealing than the other path. That feels like a life worth living. That feels like a life where there's more and more and more to get out of. That feels like a life that can navigate through chaos, a life that endures. Is this what your life looks like? Maybe it's on its way. Great. What's the next step? Maybe it's already there. Excellent. Celebrate it. But in whatever ways it's not, maybe it's time to course correct. Listen to that compass that God is putting in you that's saying, change course. There's a different path. There's a better life. There's a way through the chaos. This is not just the life that we need for ourselves. This is the kind of life that the people around us need because there is chaos in our world. There are people wandering around seeking solutions, seeking life, seeking sustenance, seeking meaning, seeking something that will feel safe and protected and good, seeking a place and a people with whom they can rest. Let's be these kinds of people. Today, the choice is before us. Do we take the road to the happy life, the satisfied life, the content life? Or do we take the different road? The psalmist, we might say, is a little cutthroat because there are lots of ways to live life. And he boils it down to, it's like, look, that other path may have lots of different branches, but they all go to the same place, and it's not happiness. It's not satisfaction. It's not contentment. Let's take the path to happiness. The path to happiness, the path to contentment, the path to satisfaction is the path that Jesus took. And I want to linger here just a second to close because I think it's important to mention that the satisfied life, the content life, the blessed life, the happy life is not without trials. It's not without pain. It's not without suffering. All of us are going to go through that. Jesus lived the happy life, the content life, the blessed life, and that life had the cross in it. Jesus talked to his disciples about the happy life, the content life, the blessed life, the satisfied life, and he said, take up your cross. In this world, you will have trouble. But see, through all the suffering, through all the pain, through all the challenges, there's always a but. In this world, you will have troubles, but I will give you my peace. Jesus died on the cross, but on the third day he rose again to life everlasting. There was the chaos of the crucifixion, the chaos of Good Friday, the chaos of death, the chaos of disorientation as their leader was laid into a tomb, but the chaos didn't rule. The chaos didn't reign. The chaos didn't win. There was a way through the chaos, and that way was the resurrection way. It was the way of Jesus. It was the way of wisdom. So today, I don't want to present a picture of a moral life that is the way of satisfaction or the way of happiness or the way of contentment. The way of happiness, the way of contentment, the way of satisfaction is the way of Jesus. The psalmist foreshadows what gets fulfilled at the cross and at the resurrection. But if you're looking to live the happy life, the satisfied life, the content life, and you've not considered Jesus, or you're looking to try to do that without Jesus, let me tell you, it's the wrong path. 
Walk the path of Jesus. It's the way of wisdom, and you'll navigate through the chaos. Let me pray. Lord, we worship you. Lord, I'm grateful that you not only promised, but you delivered. You deliver a content life, a satisfied life, a happy life, a blessed life. And I love that, Lord, because the world and society and we see messages that promise us that kind of life, but only to a few. And only if certain bars are cleared, only if we're born in a particular place in a particular way, only if we make certain choices or do certain things, only sometimes if we are willing to climb on the backs of others and put them down for the sake of us getting up. I am grateful that your way is accessible and available to everyone. Lord, I'm grateful that your way doesn't hide the truth that there is chaos in this life. And that chaos will sometimes touch us and we will feel pain. But pain doesn't get the final word. I'm grateful that your story doesn't have to obscure or hide the pain. Your story says there is the pain, but there is something beyond the pain. Lord, I'm grateful that what you promised, you delivered. Not only did you deliver, but you walked it first. You showed us the way. Lord, may we follow you today into the path of wisdom, into the path of life, into the path of happiness, into the path of contentment.